Hello and welcome to Coco Pods, a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. My name is Dr. Bola Sogadi. I'm a women's health specialist. On this podcast, we talk about all the issues relating to women's health and identify the problems and talk about ways in which we can mitigate the problems. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Dr. Raul Vangala. Thank you, Dr. Vangala, for coming to our podcast. Oh, thanks for giving me this opportunity. Since you went ahead and touched on this, why does a mother's immune system not reject a developing baby as foreign tissue, and yet people can get a liver, kidney, or lung transplant, and it keeps? After all, the baby has cells from its father also, and these cells are different from that of the mom and actually foreign to that of the mom. Why do we have successful pregnancies and why at times do we have unsuccessful pregnancies? Is there like a a failure in whatever this mechanism is? Okay. So what happens is in pregnancy, there is huge immune changes. If you take um, the sperm itself, the seminal fluid itself, actually starts out helping in the implantation of the embryo. So the father also, through the seminal fluid, is actually, it has substances in it which help the implantation of the embryo in the uterine sac. And the second thing is, as this is happening from the father's side, the uterus itself is getting prepared. And then there's a great role for placenta. There are a lot of changes in the placenta itself. So one is, um, there are some changes in the seminal, um, the seminal fluid comes with some of the changes where it helps the implantation of the embryo. The second thing is the mother's immune system is changing. In such a way, you develop tolerance And as I talked about the infections, you're losing a little bit on the infections, but you're able to tolerate. So these are not available in people who get organ transplants. The mother is changing. And then the placenta is a totally different issue. We call it as an immune privilege site, and it is very um, selective, and it comes evolutionarily too. The nematodes, the worms which infect us, and we have evolved from them, they actually escape the host. And placenta does use some of the same mechanisms. Um, They are neurokinins and some other substance like a nematode would use. Okay, so wait, so say say that very clearly. A nematode, which is uh, like a worm. Yeah, and evolutionarily we have taken those. The placenta has taken on some of the characteristics of a nematode, nematode. like a worm. Worm. Can you speak to that some more? Yeah, there are substances called neurokinins, and there are other substances which help you not to be detected by the host. That's what the worm does to proliferate in a human being. That's what placenta does. You're staying in the body for nine months or 40 weeks. So you have a lot more layers but that is one of the layers. It's simple layer, that. The second thing is placenta is a syncytium. And What's what, a syncytium? Syncytium is what happens is the cells don't have boundaries or the cells are very close to each other and there are no spaces in between the cells. 
so that what happens is in the placenta, you have cells which are closely knit together, so they do not allow a lot of other substances from the mom coming into the fetus and from the fetus going into the mom. Except so you're creating for, a barrier. Except for essential things. Like- things, yeah, the nutrients and the antibodies. We'll come to that later. So that has been actually, again, an evolutionary thing. What happened is uh, when animals evolved from oviparous to oviparous is when uh, you lay eggs like the reptiles and the birds. And then we started having embryos and started having, that is called as the um, children. That is all the animals higher up, the dogs, the cats and the bears and the human beings and the monkeys and the apes and all of us have uh, used the uh, uterus for reproduction. So what has happened is during the early signs of the evolution, the retroviruses cause some infections in those early animals. So to produce what has, um, to protect ourselves, what has happened is that those viral genomes have been left in those animals. They have been incorporated by the genomes and they actually showed us how to develop the sensation, how to protect ourselves from foreign antigens. So there the virus was doing to spread itself. Now you have a placenta forming a sensation exactly like what the virus was, uh, retrovirus was doing way back in the evolution. So that is another mechanism which we have evolutionary concept um, taken over to protect the baby. The placenta has taken from the mom's maternal immune system. And at the same time, what is happening is mother is tamping down her rejection capacities because there are cells which are called as the T-cells and the T-cells which play a big role in the tolerance or rejection are called as the T-helper cells. And in the mom, what is happening is there are three or four different types of T-helper cells and there are several others coming down too, but I'll talk mostly about three. One is the TH1 helper cells. And these are a part of the immune system which play a vital role in rejecting organs. So fetus is like a foreign body. So it wants to reject it. So you make immune suppression of Th1 responses and Th2 responses are used to suppress the Th1. So you develop tolerances by adjusting the Th1 and Th2 uh, responses. That is what the mother is doing too. So it is, the father has already done, the mother is doing, uh, mother's immune system is undergoing changes. And then at the placental site, you're having changes from the placenta itself. And then the placental cell, which is called as a tropoblast, what it does is it doesn't want the mother's immune system to recognize it. So these cells, what they do is most of our immune cells have what is called as the histocompatibility antigens, which are present in all the cells. So there are type 1 cells, there are type 2 cells. These tropoblasts do not have type 2 molecules at all. You just have the type 1, and even among the type 1, they do not have the HLA 1A and 1B on them because that would make the mother recognize the cytotoxic 
T cells which are in the mother to detect any virus, any parasite or any foreign body is out there to attack. So the tropoblasts, what they do is they do not express those cells, those molecules at all. But they express molecules called as HLA-C molecules, which help in the implantation of the placenta. And that's why pregnancy is called as a semi allograft allo is means foreign graft is semi in a way your body doesn't recognize it as completely not yours but half of it is because that is where the balance come to protect both the fetus and the mother from the infections too you still want to detect the infections and then there are cells in the body called as the natural killer cells which the mother's immune system also uses to attack the viruses, foreign bodies, bacteria, cancer cells, any foreign invader, parasites, so the natural killer cells. So what that placenta does is there is another type of HLA, which is also expressed on those cells. That one actually dampens the NK cells, that is the natural killer cells. That way, the work is going on from every side to make sure the mother doesn't reject the fetus. And whenever there is a dysregulation of this workup, this fine workup, then the pregnancies fail. And pregnancies do fail because some people have septate uterus, the uterus which is deformed and they can't really implant, or the uterus is too small for the baby. The OB People know about these people. And then you have hormonal things going on too. And then on top of it, um, the fetus itself uh, might have some big genetic uh, defects. And that's a natural way. Instead of going through the whole pregnancy, you will have a miscarriage. But even after you rule out all the other causes, you have about half of those pregnancies where you don't know the cause. And where you don't know the cause could be because there are some of misalignments in this thing. Either um, there is something going on in the uterus itself, like a patient with an autoimmune disease, where there is a lot of systemic inflammation going on. So there's a lot of breakdown of hyperinflammation going on. There is too much of blood supply at some place. So the placenta cannot take hold of it. We do do see that in autoimmune diseases. But then there could be on the maternal factors too. What I talked about, the Th2 and the Th1. The Th2, there is a interleukin there, a substance which helps the Th2 to develop tolerance. There could be a defect in that. Mm. And that also causes that too. That can lead to it, miscarriage. Yes. Miscarriage too. And yes. we also see that in uh, surrogate uh, where they have oval donations too. It is like a foreign body. For the surrogate situation in which the egg and the sperm has been fertilized and uh, yeah. implanted in, in... So this is now a third genetic makeup. makeup. So we have the genetic makeup of the egg of the mom, the genetic makeup of the sperm of the dad, and the genetic makeup of the surrogate mom. Mom, yep. And then you don't have a seminal fluid. And then... Mother's immune system is not naturally prepared to hold on the pregnancy. So you go through 
more problems there. That's why you have a lot more failures there too. You have to keep on trying to get them too. So though, though that is much more difficult too. And we are able to, even there, we are able to help people to get pregnant too. Oh. Yeah. You know, the way I look at this, because everything you said, I want to be able to explain it to, for instance, my mom, who is not a medical person. So it looks like the fetus must have some kind of favored status that allows the mom's immune system to be kind of down-regulated to tolerate the baby. Yes. And what you are saying is that when this tolerance happens, fine, we have a normal pregnancy. But when this tolerance goes bad, you talked about the spectrum of disorders like miscarriage that can happen. And even from an obstetric point of view, there can be preeclampsia, preterm labor. Everything you've said, technically, if you were going to summarize it in a very layman's terms, why does in a natural pregnancy in which the baby carries about 50%, I think, of the father's genetic material into the mom that has her own genetic material, why does the mom's immune system not identify and kick out the baby with the 50% father's immune cells that he has. If you were going to just summarize that in a very layman's term, what would you say to that? A summarize in a layman's term is your immune system of the mother is developing tolerance. The second thing is the placenta is making sure that some of the things which the mom's immune system can do they won't affect the fetus at all. So there, there is a maternal side to it and also the placental side itself. They together work together to make sure that the fetus is viable for nine months. And it's a, it's a great, actually, it's, this is one of the sites where we have actually, we're doing what is called as the um, chimeric activated uh, T-cells for cancer. So some of the placental HLA things which I talked about. So they're going to create um, these T cells, which they take from normal people. And they knock down some of the presentations of these HLA molecules. So that when you do the CART treatments for patients with cancers, you have these knockdown versions. So we are taking this from the pregnancy the tolerance mechanisms of the pregnancy so that a patient who has a cancer can have these cells from a donor which are modified in such a way that they can go and attack the cancer cells in a patient and not be rejected. We have work going on right now about cancer treatments there. There are companies which are looking at how to knock out these genes which make these proteins on the immune cells of the donors so that when they're used to attack the cancer cells, the patient's immune system does not react to them. Wow. And they can persist for a long time after you give the treatment too. So what is happening in the placenta and actually using in oncology? Wow, in cancer treatment. Cancer treatment. Wow. So we have learned a lot by looking at the, what is happening in pregnancy and we are developing how to tolerate when we use people's donor cells to help people in cancer treatments. Wow. Yeah. 
Wow. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And wow. So, and you also talked about the surrogate mom. It's amazing because the mother does not have a fetus, so she doesn't even have the TH2 type of it. How is that happening? Does the placenta getting into the, the ones which are successful? So when the placenta gets into the uterus, does that make the surrogate mother's immune system change in certain cases too? That's a very interesting concept because that mother, unlike the mother here, does not have help from the seminal fluid from, from the, the sperm. Uh, from the male. Yes. Yeah. And still the embryo, when it's taken in and is implanted, I think you do, I mean, in your specialty, you might help uh, for that implantation too. But still, I think there are changes in the placental side, which are also making the mother's immune system to adjust because that's where it comes. One is playing with the other one too. There is a real dynamic equation going on between the placenta and the mother too. Yeah, it's not just a, it's it's bi-directional. I think both of them are helping each, each other. other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The surrogate moms are also prepared hormonally to yeah. accept a uh, fetus. Fetus. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And one of the other things you talked about was you know some of the moms might even have their own autoimmune disorders going on. Yeah, that can even affect whether the pregnancy is successful or not. Yeah. So, you know, and then we know when they have autoimmune disorders, there are abnormal antibodies that they are generating that they produce in their immune system and can actually cross the placenta to the developing baby. And autoimmune disorders are actually five times more common among women. And the incidence tends to peak during the reproductive years. And some of the common autoimmune disorders that we see include thyroid disease, like Graves' disease. We see a condition called antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, in which women have a lot of miscarriages from autoimmune conditions. We see uh, immune thrombocytopenia, in which a component of the blood count is low, like the platelets. We see myasthenia gravis. We see rheumatoid arthritis. We see systemic lupus. You know, can you just explain to us in, in layman's terms how these conditions, and you kind of alluded to it when you were talking about the placental effects, how can these conditions further affect pregnancy or, or being pregnant? Okay. In autoimmune diseases, what happens is in systemic lupus erythematosus or systemic sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis, we know them to cause systemic inflammation because their effects are felt everywhere in the body. And um, they are felt in the uterus too. But even in cases where they are target-driven, like in Graves' disease, all we hear about is eyes in some patients and mostly thyroiditis. But we generally don't think about systemic inflammation. There is systemic inflammation going on there too. So what happens is that when there is systemic inflammation, the blood flow to the urine, um, uterus increases, even in Graves' disease. And that has a detrimental effect on the pregnancy too. But in phospholipid and in systemic lupus erythematosus, phospholipid syndromes, in systemic erythematosus, lupus erythematosus, what happens is you have inflammatory cells where you have active T cells or antibodies actually attacking your own system. And they are also attacking your, in phospholipid, any lipid layer. And lipid layer, phospholipid layers are main 
layers for all the cellular systems in the body and uterus is one. And that's why it's very difficult for the embryo to implant in those patients. That's why you see the highest amount of uh, miscarriages is in those patients. And in um, lupus too, you have the same problem. The implantation of the embryo is very difficult. Wow, wow, wow. I mean, this is great talk. This is great talk. You have a just a mastery of these issues. And I look at your training and I, and I wonder, we have some pre-medical students in the room and how, as a physician, trained to diagnose, treat and manage allergies, asthma, immunologic disorders, how is the training, like the medical training pathway to become uh, this super subspecialist that you are? Okay, uh, what we generally do is uh, people who come into allergy and immunology mm-hmm. have to go through, like everybody, through the med school. And you either go to pediatrics or go to internal medicine. And then either a pediatric, uh, after a pediatric program or an internal medicine program, you apply for a fellowship to allergy and immunology. But the most important part is this. Uh, you have to have a basic understanding of immunology to practice allergy. Or even rheumatology, or now even oncology is getting parts of uh, uh, GI, especially in inflammatory bowel diseases you're seeing. And it's slowly spreading into all the diseases, wherever you treat autoimmune conditions, or cancer, or allergic diathesis. Your basic training in immunology is the same. So you kind of threat to that. But when you do allergy, you generally specialize in taking care of allergic diseases, which we described at the onset of the talk. Yeah. So it looks like just for young people that might want to pattern this pathway of treatment, it it looks like it's an additional, almost about nine years beyond the bachelor's degree. Yeah. Four years of med school, at least three years of internal medicine or pediatrics. And two or three years of allergy and immunology. Most of the programs are two years, but if you want to train in uh, laboratory immunology, which is another specialization, you have one more year to do. And some of them are trained, especially those who work in the labs or at academic centers. They do two years of allergy and immunology and go to lab immunology after that. But they should not be discouraged because it's doable, right? Oh, it is doable. Because here you are in yeah. front of I'm me. Say, I'm saying for uh, most of the careers, whether you, oh, I mean, say the thing is, um, I, I always advise my kids, whatever you're going to do, uh, hard work pays off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and just to change topics, uh, I want to make sure we talk on rashes before we round up. What are the skin rashes that are associated with pregnancy? Can you just like give us a synopsis of of that? Yeah, pregnancy is associated with hives and it is associated with itch. And that is mainly dealing with, there's an acronym for it too. I'm not, POPs, I think. Yes, POPs and POPs. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And break out into hives or you have just constant itching. And I think it is probably hormonal. Antihistamines can be used if they can help. And the antihistamines we generally recommend are non-sedative, second-generation ones. Is but like uh, Claritin? Or? The thing is, if it's just hives, it doesn't matter. But if itch is involved, I think citrazine 
has a little bit of upper hand over Claritin or Allegra or the other medications because it does cross the blood-brain barrier and the receptors for the H sit in the brain. So it doesn't have the side effects of the classical old antihistamines, but it does have the benefits of addressing the H, which Claritin doesn't have. But for the hives, they are all equal. Or for sneezing, they are all equal. But when it comes to the H, that is one medication which stands out, is the cetirizine, really addresses the H as well as the hives or the sneezing. So that's where it comes. So that's one thing. And the second thing is using a lot of skin emoluments or uh, moisturizing creams to keep the skin moist so that it doesn't dry up can help in any itch, whether it is from atopic dermatitis or whether it's from contact dermatitis or pregnancy-induced itch too. So you add a little bit of moisturizing cream, not lotions. Lotions dry up really quickly. Can you tell us quickly the difference between the two creams and lotions? Oh, the lotions have very little fat and mostly aqueous media, whereas creams stick better to the skin and they stay on. So they're better lubricants. Um, They're better moisturizing agents compared to the lotions. So they help you a lot more. So that's just to uh, uh, help manage some of the skin rashes that we can see. Skin rashes too. And then you have eczema, which is also commonly seen and it does, can get worse. And there are some triggers to the eczema. So you can do, if you have... um, uh, dust as a problem, you can take care of the dust. Or if you have animal dander, you can take that. Sometimes, occasionally, in irritants and pollutants can play a role in eczema too. Lubricating your skin really well by using skin moisturizing creams and addressing the itch by actually using a lot of antihistamines which help with the itch, like citrazine here, would also control the atopic dermatitis. So your quality of life becomes much better during the pregnancy. Wow, wow. You know, Dr. Vangala, this has just been so informative. I just want to thank you also for trying to express things in layman's terms, because these are very, this can be very technical, what you do. And so just in closing, if you were just going to give, you know, general advice from someone in your profession, an allergist to uh, pregnant women out there, what would you say in closing? Never hesitate to ask and never try to, if you have a chronic condition, whether it is asthma or any other chronic conditions, don't stop the medications because you feel like your fetus is, uh, is going to be affected. Your health is as important to the fetus And always all the physicians are out there to look at the risks versus the benefits. They will provide you with medications which will benefit the maternal health and the fetal's health. At the same time, decreasing the risk of side effects from the medications. Medications are much more safer right now. We know more about medications, even if they have been used in the past and they're old medications. They're safe medications, some of them. And we know what medications which are safer during pregnancy so we can switch you around, but we still need to manage the mom because ultimately mom is going to be the provider. I mean, say mom's health is going to play a big role 
in the normal pregnancy and for the fetus to do well and the baby to come out well too. Dr. Van Gala, just talking about this complexity about how the placenta and the mom, how they both tolerate the baby that has just even 50% of the father's genes that should be rejected. It appears so complex. And I just see it almost like from a different point of view. And you used the term I was uh, thinking about. Can you, can you tell us about that again? Yeah, for common lay person, it is like a miracle. I mean, say it's like something, uh, how is this possible? How was it made? But that's how we have evolved. Is, uh, these are amazing things in the scientific community that we see these are very perplexing for us and we want to dig into them more because the same miracle which has made this possible has also given us a brain and we want to use it. And that's where it comes, where, uh, where people who believe in miracles should also believe in themselves because the brain itself is a miracle too. You should use it. You should use it. And that's where uh, what happens is in the fetus, uh, what we are seeing is something amazing which has evolved over time. We have been able to dig that out and we are digging out more about these things which we're trying to explain the best. I mean, so it's not just happening in pregnancy because pregnancy is one thing where immunologically we look at it and say, hey, for people who are in immunology, this is something amazing, something which we don't see every day there is rejection going on because that is to protect an individual, but here you're facilitating something which goes against that. And this is to facilitate um, the species to keep on going on. And that's how we have made adjustments too. Wow, this is such a miracle, miracle. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, I'm going to throw in a question from, from one of our pre-med student audience here. With uh, delivering in a hospital setting, you know, in a, in a big facility, and also compared to delivering in a freestanding birthing center setting. Obviously, just from the sizes of both facilities, there's a chance of less exposure in a smaller facility to allergens as compared to a hospital setting. Is there any difference with regard to exposures to allergen in a woman that delivers in a big facility or a freestanding birthing center or even at home? As long as um, it's a non-latex environment, because that's one of the things. Patients with all the allergens, if you take the thing, it should be equal. I mean, say everybody should be on the same line. Only place where the hospital might be beneficial to is a patient who has severe asthma, who is not well managed. And I think all the birthing centers would say, hey, this doesn't belong here. It'll go to the hospital. But the regular patients with allergies are mild, well-maintained uh, asthma, and you are not going to be intubated, and it's a regular pregnancy, and you have already made the thing. I think a birthing center is as good as the hospital is. But then if mother's life is at jeopardy because the asthma is very severe and it is not responding to medications really well, then the physician will make it. He will always divert that patient to a hospital rather than to a birthing center. Wow. 
We have just been so fortunate talking to Dr. Raul Vangala, an allergist immunologist in the Middle Georgia area. Dr. Vangala, we're definitely having you back, first of all, and thank you so much for shedding light on a lot of things that we want to ask ourselves. Thank you so much for coming to our podcast. Uh, no problem at all, and thanks for giving me this opportunity. You've been actually after me for about three or four months. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like like literally after you uh, yeah, no, but uh, it's not because it, it, it's been a busy schedule and uh, that's the reason and I have too many things going on mm, yeah. right now and mm. you know some of them yes. yeah yes, so yeah, yeah. that's the only thing I yeah. would say we'll be glad to be again um, here if you need on any other topics in my speciality yeah thank you so much thank you for coming no problem Bye-bye.